0: Uh, So you guys may have noticed a pattern in the last uh, couple of series that we've gone through um, at Roots this year. In the fall, we did a series called How to Change, and we just finished a six-week series through prayer, and that's not by accident. Uh, The pattern we've kind of been trying to keep to this year is covering some basic topics. Uh, And the reason is because um, regardless of whether you grew up in the church or you've never been to church before, uh, there's certain things um, that Christians or people who know about Christianity will talk about a lot. Um, but just because we talk about them a lot doesn't really mean we understand them super well. Um, and it doesn't necessarily we mean or understand what the Bible means when it talks about the same question. Um, I was noticing that even when we did our prayer series with some of the questions that you guys had on prayer. Um, it was a good uh, reminder that uh, just because we know prayer might be important doesn't mean uh, we prioritize it or doesn't know doesn't mean we don't know why we're supposed to prioritize it. And I think the same is true with change. Just because we know we're supposed to change, we can sometimes think that uh, God doesn't love us unless we change, or um, there's certain things we need to change before we change our heart, like our behavior, for example. And so um, that's why it's the job of the church and the pastors at the church to be able to help you guys navigate your Bibles so that you can see this uh, when you take this home and read it yourself, that you can get the same information that God wants to communicate with you about some of these basic topics. Um, And so continuing with that trend, um, we're now in our third series this year, um, which more than likely will get us pretty close to the fall. And if we have time, we'll do another brief series. Um, But depending on how helpful this is, this might be another number of weeks. And the new series that we're gonna cover starting today is the church. Uh, The church is probably one of the most important topics, in my opinion, Um, that you could possibly cover after the doctrine of God and the doctrine of salvation and probably um, a couple others as well. But I also think it's probably one of the most underappreciated and underexplored topics in the Bible, especially for young people. Uh, Since I was a teenager, this is not a topic that you hear about very often. And so because of that, it can kind of have a general or generic uh, definition without it really being powerful or meaning very much. Um, But one of the reasons it's also really cool to go through a series like this is because when you cover the church, um, you inevitably have to talk about more than just the church. You don't just define it and then leave it. If you bring up this idea about the church in the Bible, you're going to see it's connected with a million other important Christian topics like identity or mission, daily life, obedience, growth, hope, And so many more. You could almost pick every topic in the Bible and it's going to be directly related to what the Bible talks about when it talks about the church. Uh, One of the ways that you could say it is that your view of the church defines what living as a Christian looks like. Your view of the church will define what living as a Christian looks like. Or you could even say it uh, more dramatically. You could put it this way. Your view of the church defines what you believe God is doing through his people in the world. Your view of the church defines what you believe God is doing through his people in the world. And so this is some of the couple of the important reasons why we're trying to do a topic on this. But um, honestly, in this culminating in an actual series for you, there's at least two other reasons, important reasons why um, I think this topic is so important for us to cover in youth ministry. Uh, Here's the first one that there's a lot of misunderstandings about the church. Now, what I mean by that is you guys live in Orange County. And if you guys don't know, Orange County has a million different kinds of churches. There's really, really big churches that are globally recognized uh, throughout the whole world that are here, that are close to here. And then there's also tons of tiny little churches that are all around here. And especially for California, where churches are normally a bit more rare than in other places in the world, Orange County, for some reason, is one of these places that just has a ton of churches. And in a lot of ways, sometimes when you talk to even non-Christians, they have a generally positive view. And that's not bad. It's good for the church to have a good reputation. But often when you talk to people in the world, they can have a lot of misunderstandings about what the church is actually about which we'll talk about a little bit today. And while that's reasonable for people outside of the church, it shouldn't be reasonable for people in the church, especially because for many of you, you guys come here um, to this building once every seven days. And so if it's gonna be that integral in your daily life, then you should know what we mean when we talk about the church. That's the first. But the second reason is this, uh, which is that your life in Christ is inseparable from the church, Your life in Christ is inseparable from the church. I heard one pastor say it very, very dramatically. And you tell me how dramatic this feels. Uh, He said that if you are not actively involved in a local church, you might be going to hell. You tell me with your facial expression if that feels dramatic. If you're not involved in a local church, you might be going to hell. Now, I think some of you guys who understand that Uh, salvation, the gospel, being saved, has nothing to do with what you do, but it has everything to do with what Christ has done. That's the gospel, right? It's not based on our works, it's by faith alone. And so when I say that statement, you might be thinking, hey, that sounds different from the gospel. Attending a church every Sunday morning seems to be doing something which should not be related to the gospel. And to be honest, you would be exactly right. But one of the reasons that I say that so importantly, is that when we talk about the church in the Bible, we're not talking about something you feel forced to do. We're saying you being a Christian and being involved in a church is something you want to do. And not just because you have a personality that likes being around other people, but you've been supernaturally changed to understand the essential value of the church. If you have been changed by Christ, you understand how important the church is. And so it's not something you feel compelled or forced to do, uh, but being involved in a church is something that you desperately long to do. And that's because this idea of the church is so dramatic. And even if that statement makes you wary, I hope as you get through this series, you understand exactly what we mean by it, because we're gonna impact that statement and what it means as we continue. But what we need to cover today, at least as a brief introduction, is this simple question, which is, what is the church? What defines the church? And to start there, what we want to do is go to Matthew chapter 28. So if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be reading three verses. And they're the last three verses of Matthew's gospel. Sometimes this is known as the Great Commission. So this is a passage of scripture many of you guys have probably heard many, many times. Um, it's better if you have your actual Bible in front of you to see it because we'll be referring to it back. But if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up just behind me here. And I'm going to read it for you now as you uh, turn there. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20. These are Jesus's last words in the gospel to his disciples. And Jesus came to his disciples and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, like I said, these are the last words of Matthew's gospel. And in that gospel, we've been watching, if you've been reading it for 28 chapters, about what Christ has come to do. Christ has come fully God and has taken on human flesh and has come to live a perfect life for two reasons. One, primarily, that he would be perfectly righteous before the Father. So when he dies and his people trust in him for salvation, his perfection is given to them. Uh, so that they don't have to do anything to get into heaven, but rather all of the perfect work that Christ has done is given to them. Uh, But the second reason that Christ has done this is because he's been teaching his disciples how to live. Uh, So much so, so important is this in Matthew's gospel that one pastor I read said that one of the primary themes in Matthew's gospel is discipleship, which is what it means to follow Christ. And of course, you have to look at what Christ did in order to see that discipleship is important. And now when he gets to the end of the gospel after he has lived his perfect life and then died an innocent death and then was resurrected to prove that the gospel is actually complete, he then tells his disciples something really important, uh, which is that they need to go and tell this mission to everyone. Just because Christ has completed the gospel doesn't mean everyone in the world knows about it. So they are given the primary mission as a Christ follower and it involves four things because there's four verbs in this text. These are the four things. Number one, they have to go. Number two, they have to make disciples. Number three, they have to baptize those disciples. And number four, they need to teach them and specifically teach them to observe everything Christ commanded them. Now, these are four things that Christ's people, not just his disciples, but everyone who believes in Christ is called to do. However, if you knew Greek and the Greek grammar, you would know that one of those verbs is the main verb and the other three are wrapped around that and describing the main verb. And the main verb, as you can see, highlighted on the PowerPoint is this idea of making disciples. Now, a disciple is a follower and a learner. And so when Christ is saying to his disciples to make disciples, he's describing what it means to be a disciple, which is to make more disciples. And when he explains that, he says that means it involves at least three things. The first thing is you have to go in order to make disciples. Now that's really radical because God's people in the Old Testament weren't necessarily called to go. They called people to come, to come into Israel and become culturally an Israelite in order to understand who God was. But now it's the opposite. Now God's people are called to go all over the world. He says to all of the nations. So that anyone, whether they are Jewish or whether they're Gentile, which is a non-Jewish person, everybody is allowed to be a Christ follower and anyone can become a Christ follower. But first his disciples need to go. But the second thing they need to do is to baptize them. And what he doesn't mean is you need to go and make sure you put people in water, then pull them out. What he's saying is they need to experience change. That's what baptism is. It's representative of something. What Christ is saying is you need to go out to the world and you need to understand that people can change in Christ. When you come to Christ, you come as you are, but you don't stay as you are because Christ changes you so that supernaturally you can only not only believe in him, but you can become like him, not perfectly, but obediently. That you would understand he's the perfect model of human being and we represent that as we baptize people, they die to their old former way of life and they are raised up to new life in Christ. So disciples need to go and they also need to baptize but there's a third thing they need to do which is to teach and that verb to teach isn't go teach them the gospel and then bail. It's a continuous idea. They need to be continually taught. They need to keep looking at Christ. They need to keep learning about Christ. They need to keep seeing what it means to not only obey, but to find joy in Christ alone. And these are three things that we're covering today because they're essential to understanding in Matthew 28, uh, this introductory idea to what it means to be the church. So I wanna give you two observations from this text that can introduce you to this idea of the church that come from this. Here's the first one. The first observation is the church is a people, not a place. The church is a people, not a place. When we're talking about the church, we're talking about people and specifically people together. These people are disciples and they are united around this idea of making disciples of Christ. That is the kind of people that a church is. And this church, these people have a mission, which continues for every Christ follower today, which is to share the gospel, to create more disciples, to explain to them and witness their transformation from death to this world and new life in Christ. That's baptism. And they need to continually be taught. So they don't just hear about Christ and then bail. They need to consistently come together continually and continue to learn from Christ. You could also say it this way. The church is a people who are defined by their identity and their mission. So another way you could say that is the church is who people are and what they do. That's what makes a church a church. And the reason that's important is because it means that the church isn't primarily a place. When we're talking about the church, we're not talking about a building, even though we use that as shorthand, which makes sense. And when we use it as shorthand, we know what that is. But it's important to know that the importance, the spirituality of a church is found in the people who gather in the place, not the building itself. You know, I don't know if many of you guys know, but 70 years ago, this place was an ice house. Actually, one day there was a man who knocked on the door and he explained to us um, that this place was actually owned by his dad. His dad used to own this place. They used to store ice in it. And only about 30 years ago, this place was a nightclub. Um, They used to have a lot of really famous rock bands who would play in here randomly. So there's nothing supernatural about this building. If there was, then we'd be in a lot of trouble based on this place being a nightclub. Uh, But that's not the case. The only thing spiritual and important about this place is the people who gather in it. It's kind of essential to know that too, because the early church didn't have a place to gather. They gathered in different people's homes or they found other places where they would switch and continually go to different places, but they remained a church. One of the ways Christ puts it later is, where two or three people gather in my name, there I am also. So the church's ability to be who it is in Christ and to fulfill Christ's mission is when it gathers together, not where it gathers. And now, if you really wanna understand this a little more deeply, you can break it down into many different categories. And there's at least one way that you could break this down, this idea of the church as a people. And that's to talk about the universal church or the local church. Raise your hand if you've heard those terms before, universal church and local church. Now, both of those things are the church, but they're talking about something a little different. When you talk about the universal church, you're talking about every believer in Christ ever way back from when Christ died and was resurrected, all the way into the future until Christ comes again. All of those people are the church in the sense that they all believe in Christ. You could go to Papua New Guinea or Africa or Uganda, wherever you wanted to go to China. And if you meet Christ followers and gather together with them, you are the church. But at the same time, in order to fulfill Christ's mission, we don't all over the world meet at one place. We don't take a Zoom call with about 3 million people throughout the whole world to be the church. God called you to a specific place. All of you either live in Fullerton or somewhere around the Fullerton area. And if you believe in Christ, you come here on a Sunday morning and gather together to fulfill Christ's mission and to commit yourselves to worshiping God here in this place. And we call that the local church what Christ is doing in this specific geographical place. But the reason it's so important to understand the difference between that, it's not a useless nuance. The reason you need to know that is because it really makes a difference in who you think the church is about and who you think is empowering the church to fulfill its mission. Because if your only view of the church is your local church, is Cornerstone Bible Church, it can be very, very intimidating to believe that Christ's mission is actually going forward. Let me give you a little illustration of that. I have a friend uh, who knows another mutual friend who was uh, very depressed one day. He had been thinking for a long time um, about how maybe he grew up in a bubble. Maybe all of the things he believed was only because he grew up in the church that he grew up in. And he wondered whether beyond the walls of his church or his specific area or community, uh, there were really other people who actually believed in the same things he believed in. Uh, now, my friend to this friend is a really good friend. And so to cheer him up, he took him to Disneyland. So pretty awesome friend. Um, and as they were walking around, they were spending time together and really enjoying their time um, until they got kind of tired and hungry. So they made their way to one section of the park only to find that it was incredibly crowded. Um, but when they got there, as they were looking for a seat, this guy motioned over It was this older man and he was uh, there with his wife and they had a younger baby in a stroller and he motioned saying there was a spare seat there. And so they came over and sat down. And as they sat down, they started talking. And as they started talking, this stranger started sharing the gospel with them. And so my friend very casually turned over to him. He said, don't tell him we're Christians yet. And so he just waited and they listened to this guy share the gospel for 20 minutes And our other mutual friend who was kind of depressed until there started crying because he started realizing that it wasn't just his church that believed this gospel. This random stranger in the middle of Disneyland was not prioritizing the enjoyment he was having with his family. He was prioritizing sharing the gospel with people who might not know it. And even though my friends didn't know it, it was amazing to see that it's not humans Who are primarily sharing this message as the ultimate means of salvation? It's Christ all over the world, and even in Disneyland, with a stranger who is making sure that people come to him. And the other way you could say that is Christ himself is building his church. Christ himself is building his church. In Matthew chapter 16, one of the most important passages in Scripture is explained which is that Christ is talking to a multitude of people. And he asks, who do you say that I am? And they all start throwing out ideas. Maybe he's a prophet maybe he's a new leader, but Christ turns to his own disciples. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's kind of the leader in this 12 person friend group, he says, well, Jesus, you are the son of God. And Jesus tells him that you are blessed for knowing this for two reasons. Number one, Um, Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And the second reason is that that statement and him saying that statement will be the rock, he says, that he will build his church upon. Even though lots of people debate on what that rock is supposed to be, whether it's Peter or the word, the emphasis in that text that Christ says is who's building the church. Because ultimately he's not saying, Peter, make sure you work hard or my church is not going to get built. And he's also not saying, well, make sure you share the truth of the gospel exactly right, or else my church is not going to be built. Both of those things were important. But what Christ primarily said is, I will build my church. He will build his church. Do you notice the difference? So the church is a people who prioritize Christ, number one, and the promise that the church is going to be built is whose job ultimately? It's God's which is important for people like us who are very broken and very weak. And even in Christ, we are very, very sinful. And yet Christ has promised to bring his people to himself, to gather them together wherever they are in the world so that they would worship God and they would continue to make disciples. That's Christ's promise that he will do that. Christ says that in John chapter 10, verse 27 to 29, where he says this, my sheep hear my voice. He's not, I hope they hear my voice. They will hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And the way that that's explained to them later at the beginning of the gospel of Acts, it's not a gospel actually, just the book of Acts Um, Christ's disciples hear for the first time that they will be witnesses all over the world when the Holy Spirit empowers them. So the ability to share the gospel as the church is built and the message of who the church is about, both of them have the same answer, which is Christ. Christ is building his church. That's gonna be really important as we get into this next observation. The first observation was that the church is a people, not a place. But the second observation is really important which is this, God created the church, not man. God created the church, not man. You go all over the world and you'll see lots of different kinds of churches. You'll see churches that like certain music and ones that like other music. You'll see churches that had to find a building and you'll see churches that had money to build their own building. You'll see some churches in parts of the world that are mainly the same ethnicity But you'll see many churches all over the world that are full of many, many different kinds of ethnicities. There's lots of different ways and places that the church can look and be. But ultimately, the idea, the core idea of the church isn't something that we finagle, which means we change or we make what we want, because the church wasn't based on us. Many groups in the world base their gatherings on what people say. The Catholic church creates the church based on what tradition and the Pope say is right. Different cults base all of their ideas on what one person says. But ultimately, the authority for the church to look a certain way has one author and one leader, and that's Christ. And you'll see that actually at the beginning of the section that we're in in Matthew, when Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So God the Father sent Christ not only to save us, but to give him continual authority as we are saved throughout the world. Christ has authority to explain to the church what it should look like, how its people should live, what they must believe, and who they should be. And we don't get to change that. And as we talk about this a little bit, I hope you understand that's a really, really good thing. Because the question is, if we're talking about that, why is that important? And part of the reason it's important is not only because we, we have to get rid of this mistaken idea that we can make the church absolutely anything we want it to be, but we have to understand it this way, the way, uh, when pastor Alistair Begg said it. The church is not man's invention, but a divine institution. God created one institution and it wasn't our government. It wasn't our post office. It wasn't a sports club. The one institution God built was the church. He created it to do something different than any other institution in the world. And he created his people to do one thing that is more important than any other thing. Churches can get involved in many, many good and different things, and those are awesome. But the church is supposed to be devoted to one thing, which is making disciples that would worship God through Jesus Christ. That is the main mission of the church. But there are other reasons why this is so important. And another reason that this is really important is because if the church doesn't constantly remind itself that it's about Christ, then the church will inevitably become about us. This is the way that humans work, Um, especially humans, even if they're saved in Christ. If we don't remind ourselves the church is about Christ, we will accidentally think we can make it about us and whatever we want it to be. And unfortunately, there's many, many churches in this world and even in Orange County um, that believe that the church can be about all sorts of different things. If you go to all sorts of different churches that are all around us, you can see that they start to become about many, many different things. Uh, Some of them look like counseling centers. Some of them look like a concert. Some of them look like self-help seminars. And many of them will sell themselves on all sorts of different ideas. Sometimes they say, come here because we'll help you find friends and learn how to be a good friend. We'll help you handle your money. We'll help you under overcome your personal difficulties or we'll teach you to navigate the world with a constantly positive outlook. And listen, as I even say those things, I'm not trying to judge every other church. We certainly don't have a monopoly on truth at our church. And I'm not even saying none of those things are bad. You're allowed to have music and lights. You're allowed to help people with problems. Those are all good things. The important thing though, is that's not the main thing. While these things are good, there's gonna be a problem if Christ is not at the center of them. When Christ says to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is explaining to himself who he is. He is Trinity. He is three persons in one. And what he's explaining in that idea of changing and learning about Christ constantly is the church is the place that understands who God is. And who God is shapes who the church is. The church is ultimately the institution that God has revealed himself to. And we're only gonna know what to do if we prioritize knowing who God is first. That's why we preach, that's why we teach, that's why we worship, because we're trying to know who God is. And fortunately for us, God through his word has revealed exactly who he is. One of the reasons this is so important, and you'll know this if you know the gospel, is because when humans try to make a church about themselves, you get into problems because as the gospel would show you, we are not complete in ourselves. Uh, We are finite beings and we are lacking and our sinful bent when we make things about ourselves um, is to fall into problems. God did not design us to be complete in ourselves. He designed us after his image that we would find completeness in him. And if our churches aren't about him first, they're going to be broken. They're going to fall flat. Which means if God has told us that the church should look a certain way, we shouldn't be trying to fix that, especially in order to try and find appeal to people in the world. Now, many churches want to love people outside of the church, but one of the ways they try to do that is they change the church. They go out and tell people uh, to come as they are, which is good. But the problem is many churches will design themselves to tell people accidentally that people come as they are and they stay as they are. And the reality is that the gospel is so much better than that. The gospel tells people when they come to worship with saints on a Sunday morning that they should come exactly as they are. But when you see the glory of God through his people, you don't stay as you are. You are supernaturally transformed into something so much better. And the way that that witness of God is demonstrated to people is when they gather together to worship God as he intends. Now, I'm definitely not trying to say when I say that, that the church is trying to be unlikable. The church wants to reach out to people, but we're not gonna be able to show people how the church is different if, if we make it about something other than God intended. The true church prioritizes worshiping God rather than ourselves, because when we do that, we see how amazing God has designed the church to be. The church doesn't need fixing, because God is not the one who needs fixing. We are the ones who need fixing. That's why all of the goals, all of Christ's mission for what the church must be goes back to a right understanding of who Christ is. Look at the commands. Christ calls us to make disciples. To make disciples of who? Not us. Because if you go to any church, you are going to meet broken, weak, and sinful people but the reason we can be extraordinary is not because of us, but who we are disciples of, which is Christ. Christ has been given authority to be the head of the church. And as we follow him and point people to him, we make real disciples who are changed by him. That's also why we baptize. Ask yourselves the question, who are we baptizing them in? It's not so they would change to be part of our personal preferences. They are supposed to be baptized in the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. Why? because that's exactly who God is. And it's who we are changed to know in order to worship who God actually is. And then look at the other commandment, to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. Why are we supposed to obey what Christ commanded? Because Christ was fully divine and was the perfect human being. So Christ never did anything wrong and never sinned and is therefore the perfect model of obedience. So perfect, in fact, that we rest in his perfection in order to be right before God in the first place. Now we are called to change in the church, but we are not changed so that we can be saved. We are saved and therefore we change. And if Christ isn't in the middle of that, we're gonna have a problem. The more that the church understands who God is, And the more the church understands the gospel that saved us to understand who God is, the more we worship joyfully saying, God is God and I'm not. If you want affirmation of this, then read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul explains who exactly did Christ save? Because he didn't save the strong. He did not save the wise. He said, Christ came to save the low and the weak and the foolish and the despised. Why? So they would boast in the Lord. Christ is the one who has ultimate care of the most vulnerable, the weakest. And if you are a Christian, you know that that was you. But Christ did that for a reason. Because the more that Christ can demonstrate in light of his glory, who we are in this church, the more we understand how great he is and how good he has been to us. And again, and again, and again, this all falls apart if a church is not God-centered and Christ-centered. I like how Paul continues that thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, where he says this, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That verse is packed, saying so many things. One thing it's saying is that God has all wisdom. Then it's saying God gave us that wisdom in the church. That we're not wise in ourselves, but as we turn ourselves to God, we have divine wisdom, not only to navigate life, but to see what God is doing in this world. One of those things he was doing is that even before the world began, he had this idea for the church. And that he explains that's all for our glory. What does he mean? He's saying that it's our glory to worship God's glory that we would understand the weightiness and significance of the church as we understand God's glory in who he is and what he's done to save us. And ultimately when that happens and as the church rests in that, it creates a kind of culture that is so much deeper than you would understand if you didn't look to Christ. The example of this I was thinking about is that as many of you guys were saying when we came in, myself, Ashley, and a couple of other friends were part of a proposal yesterday. Uh, Matt, as some of you guys know, proposed to McKenna yesterday. Spoiler alert, she said yes. It's good to know. Um, and one of the things we had to do is we learned a song that we sang in Korean. Ashley learned a lot more Korean than I did. I only had to learn four words, and I'm very thankful for that. But as we heard, first heard the song, we were kind of like, oh, this is a fun song, kind of like hopping along. It's kind of cute and bubbly and fun and that kind of stuff. But Matt very quickly told us, he's like, no, this song's actually like really, really serious. The reason I didn't know that is not only because I don't know Korean culture, but I don't know any words in Korean. I can say hajima, which means stop it. I can't say anything besides that. And because I'm not involved in that culture, I I don't know how deep that song is. But after hearing and listening to the song about a 100 times to prep for this proposal, it was very, very easy to get emotional by the time the proposal came. And it wasn't just because of the proposal itself, which was very emotional. It was because I understood the song better. I'd listened to it so many times and Matt had explained so many pieces of it and parts of it that I started to get involved in the culture through him. And in a much more dramatic way, the church is called to do something also, something very similar. The culture of the church becomes what it is through Christ. And even as you come to the church, you'll notice very, very many weird things that start to change the more you're in the church when I was younger, there's a song we used to sing a lot. It's called, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. The first time I heard that song, I'm like, that is the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. It sounds very strange and very icky. But the more I've become a Christian, that's become one of my favorite songs ever. And it's not because I've enjoyed violence more. Uh, The reason I've started to enjoy it more is because I understand that Christ needed to die a violent death at the hands of people who hated him for no reason in order to save me, someone who is just as prone to hating God and wanting to violently kill him as them. As we look to Christ and we see what Christ has done for us, it starts to reform not just who we are, but who God is. And as that church is seen in light of Christ and follows the pattern that Christ decreed, it starts to be something that Spurgeon once called the dearest place on earth. And as we'll see as we continue this series, that's definitely not because of us. It's definitely not because we are awesome. It's because of the awesomeness of the person we revolve around. And so as we close today, we're really just trying to introduce you to this idea of the church based on those two things. When we're talking about the church, we're talking about a people, both universally and locally. But as we talk about the church, we're also talking about an even greater idea, which is that these people have been put in this place and have gathered together for this reason because of God's design. And it's not just a design that will end here, but it becomes a picture of something much, much greater something that eternity is going to look like. And so as the church actually follows the model that God designed, and actually follows his pattern, it starts to demonstrate not just a nice or kind culture, but a culture that gives us a glimpse of heaven because of the one who owns heaven and has brought us together for a very specific person. To give you a spoiler alert for where we're going to go, there's gonna be a very central idea that's gonna guide this study, which is this. The church is going to know its mission when it knows its identity. Just like I said, when we opened this message, the church is going to understand what it needs to do when it understands who it is. Not just you as a Christian yourself, but when you gather on a church on Sunday morning or you even come here for Roots, if you are saved with other saved people and you come together, you are doing something. And what you are doing is influencing not just who you're reminding yourself of your identity, but what you are then called to do, both when you are together and when you go out and are apart. The church knows its mission when it understands its identity. And to give you a glimpse of why this is so important, let me end with this verse in John chapter 17, verse 26. This is Christ praying for the church before he goes to die. And this is what he prays to the father. He says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You know why Christ built the church? This verse reveals to us one of the reasons is that we would experience divine love you can start to understand the dramatic nature of that first quote that I told you about the correlation between being a Christian and going to church and going to hell. When you understand this, God's love is demonstrated in the church. Lone Ranger Christians don't wanna be apart from divine love. They wanna experience divine love, not just from the gospel, though primarily so, but also through being with saints who understand divine love in Christ and therefore have divine love for each other. The kind of love that Christ has given us comes out of us when we gather together. And it goes out of us when we go apart to bring people in that they would see that divine love. And the only institution that has done that is the church. And that's why this is a doctrine you have to carry with you, not just when you leave here today, but when you go to your sports teams, when you go to college. Wherever you are going, you must be part of the church If you're not, you're not just missing opportunities to be well-taught. You're not just missing opportunities to grow. You're missing opportunities to understand who you are, your mission, and to experience the supernatural love of God for you and how that can empower you to be used for God in the world. That is why the church is so important. And that's just an introduction to this because as we go for the next five weeks at least, I wanna give you five descriptions of who the church is, their identity. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter two for that primarily. And as we go through those identifiers, who the church is, we're also going to look at how that affects what the church does.